Hello, welcome back to the podcast series all about life at Chawton House with me, Lizzie Frisby. Based in the tiny village of Chawton in Hampshire, it's the once home to Edward Knight, brother of the world-famous writer, best known for her novel Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. With so much going on all year round, I want to keep you informed of what is going on, chatting to curators, volunteers, gardeners, guest speakers and more. In this episode, we talk to Martin Caddick, who is a volunteer tour guide and researcher at the house. He will be unveiling the history of Chawton House prior to the Knight family, who bought the estate in 1551. You may be about to be overwhelmed with fascinating information, so maybe grab yourself a notepad and pen and a cup of tea and we'll begin. Good morning, Martin. Good morning. Good morning, Lizzie. How are you this morning? I'm good, slightly hay fevery, but uh, otherwise quite well. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we are, of course, chatting over a funny little internet technology device so that we can stay socially distanced at this time, of course. So <laughs> hopefully we won't hear any dogs barking in the background. I should have mentioned that right as we started because I can already hear my dog barking outside in the garden. <laughs> I do have a cat here and he uh, he has been pestering me most of the morning, but uh, he's settled down for a sleep now, I'm glad to say. <laughs> That's good. Right, I guess to start with, when did you put together all this research for the history before the nights and how long has it sort of taken you? Oh, yes, yeah, so this one of life's great mistakes. Um, <laughs> I was in a meeting and uh, I was getting frustrated as a guide because we, we didn't really know, we didn't have a coherent picture of the history of the house. So I said, we must have it somewhere. And they said, yeah, but take a while to put together. Mm. So I said, uh, well, I'll do it for you. I think it would probably take me a month or two to do it. That was... Um, well, at least 18 months ago, about oh. 20 months ago. <laughs> so, wow. And uh, I still got a, an awful lot still to do. I, I can see another year, two years worth of work to finish it off, really. Wow, goodness. And what sort of records are you using to collate all this information? Well, I started off by looking through this stuff that's in the house because obviously the people working in the house have great interests and uh, people come around and they know things about the house and they collect it all up. We had archaeologist reports over the years. We had house historians go in over the years. It's not really been pulled together. But there's lots of gaps as well. So you end up going down to the Hampshire Record Office. One of the big pluses for me was that Richard Knight, who's the, the current owner of the house, he's a most recent member of the Knight family. He gave me 10 banker's boxes full of papers. And that took me the best part of a year to go through. I mean, just enormous quantities of information about more recent history, to be honest, rather than before the Knights. Mm. There's a lot on the internet as well. Um, You can go and search through some of the old genealogical websites. Some of the best information actually comes from local historians. I mean, we've got a, a local historian here, Jane Hurst, who she knows everything um, about the about the area mm. and some of the other mysteries of the house or the family I've solved by contacting other local historians in other areas right. who've been able to dig up. I mean, one of them, for example, found an old inscription underneath a, a carpet in the church, which settled a point of ancestry, wow. which was really useful. Goodness, so a massive jigsaw that you've yes. gone about to put together for everyone, I guess, to enjoy and be able to learn more about the house. So yes. that's yes. great. I've enjoyed it as well. It's detective work, isn't it? Yes, definitely. It's a, it's a giant puzzle. But the pieces in the jigsaw don't necessarily all fit together. Yeah, I can imagine it would be quite a nightmare. I'd be pulling my hair out over it. (laughs) So, yes, today we're going to be talking about who was at Chawton House before the night. So I believe the Knight family 
Am I right in saying that they owned it in 1583? That's when they built the house. They had been renting it before, at least since around about 1524. Uh, They're renting it from a chap called Sir Thomas West. So they've been in place for longer. We don't really know where the knights came from. Uh, There are records, local records of knights in Chorlton and in Alton from the 13th century. But it's not an uncommon name. So we don't know whether it's the same family or not. Right. So that was sort of a new house. But what was there before the Chorlton house as we know it today then? How far back does it date? Well, we know for sure that there was a medieval manor house because there are clear records of that. Um, Strangely enough, there aren't really very clear archaeological records or evidence of it, but uh, there are um, various court records. There may have been a hall before that medieval hall. The medieval hall was built in 1224, and there probably was some kind of manorial hall before that, but there are no records of that, and there's no physical evidence of it either. Back in Saxon times, the land was divided up into fiefs, so each village would have its, like a fief or fiefdom, and it would have its, uh, its ruler, its, its lord. And when the Normans came, uh, those fiefs became manors. And the manor isn't the manor house, the manor is the, the piece of land that the, uh, that the Norman lord owns. In Saxon times, there'd be a place where you all met, a meeting place, which would often be at a crossroads or uh, some kind of clearing where, where people would meet and conduct the business of the fief. But in Norman times, they had to have some kind of building where the, the business was conducted. So that's why we assume there must have been a, a hall from round about the time of William the Conqueror to when the actual medieval manor was built, which was 1224. But we've got no evidence other than just that knowledge that there must have been one. I see. Okay. So you say the medieval house was built in 1224. Why do you think it was built where it is then? Well, yes, the why is quite interesting. Um, The land was owned by a family called uh, Saint-Jean. The Saint-Jean family, they were based in Basing, uh, the Lords of Basing. They had a big castle-come-house there, which was um, eventually destroyed during the English Civil War. Um, They had something like, I think, 55 manors across Hampshire, 75 in total. So they owned an awful lot. What they would do, they subcontract a lot of those manors out to their retainers, their knights, and so on. So there's maybe a dozen or so that were actually directly managed by the Saint-Jean family, one of which was Chorton. Why did they build it? Well, the date of the building was just the start of Henry III's reign, and the, the king before Henry III was King John. And the Saint-Jean family had sided with the barons during the uh, rebellion against King John. When John died, they were there opposing the king, the new king, who was a boy, Henry III, and quite a famous chap, William Marshall. He confiscated all the Saint-Jean lands and gave them to his cousin. And almost instantly, the Saint-Jean family realised that they'd been for the king all along. And uh, they they changed back. But they needed to court favour with the king. At the time, Henry III was born in this area. He was, he was brought up in Winchester. And Winchester was still the administrative centre of England at the time. Yes. So people travelled backwards and forwards from London to Winchester. So they thought, we'll build a hunting lodge at Chorton, which was on the road from London to Winchester. Mm-hmm. The king really had a bit of a choice. Um, he could he could stop off at Farnham Castle. Farnham Castle is where the Bishop of Winchester lived. So he could stop off there. He could say a few prayers. He could repent a few of his sins. He could listen to some you know, fatherly advice from the Bishop about how to run the country. Or he could stop off at this new house that the St. John's had built at Chorton. And they had a thousand acre deer park and gardens. And you can guess where he chose to stay. 
He actually stayed uh, in the house, so we've got records. Um, these are court orders that you know, were signed at Jordan. We've got records of 22 separate occasions. But we've also got records of him sending wine down to Chawton House as well. Ooh, lovely. <laughs> yes, 10,000 gallons. 10,000. <laughs> Goodness, that, that sounds like he must have been having quite a party. <laughs> well, we're fairly sure that he stayed many more times than the records show. Probably the, the wine deliveries suggest another 19 or so times. So he was a frequent visitor and they're Hampshire lords together. I mean, uh, the king was the Hampshire lad. And um, yeah, they had a good time. Fabulous. That, that does sound great, actually. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's just because I'm a big fan of wine, but hey. And can I just <laughs> ask as well, do you think, because um, obviously we have Chawton Woods there, is that only a fraction of the size of the woodland that would have existed in the Chawton area during the sort of time that the manor house existed when it was being used uh, for hunting, do you think? Yes, I mean, it was a thousand acre deer park. Well, it had two deer parks. There's one, one 100 acre one and one thousand acre deer park. Um, and the woodlands are still there, actually, but they're not part of the Chawton grounds now. If you go to Chawton House, you're, you're going to a piece of woodland which is known as the Wilderness, which is quite small. On the other side of the main road, the main Winchester road, that's where the hunting parks are. And uh, that remains uh, a place where you can walk. A lot of people walk their dogs uh, through there. So when you walk through the woods, that is what would have been the old deer parks years and years and years ago. Yes, it's still you can still see in places, you can see the old banks where the palisades to keep uh, poachers out were. Oh, and how big was the manor house? Well, you know... I wish we knew, and <laughs> and we don't really. We think it must have been quite big because mm. uh, the the royal entourage could number up to three hundred people. Um, right. Probably not necessarily that big all the time, but um, you've got a lot of people turning up. Yeah. And have you said a lot that? Of room for wine as well, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Well, they got they got the cellars, of course, <laughs> and and actually, that is a piece of evidence of where the actual old manor house was because down in the cellars of the current house there's the medieval doorway dating back to the 13th century so that probably is from the old manor house which i'll come back to actually because uh, the question of where the manor house is is controversial but in those days what would happen is uh, you'd feast you could do your hunting your feast the entourage would sleep in the great hall and then there'll be um, rooms behind the great hall the cross wing they call it and the king and the senior lords would uh, perhaps retire to there and they have bedrooms and chambers in the cross wing so you didn't need to have 300 rooms for 300 retainers mm. you just needed to have a big big hall so it was a good size but it was almost like a medieval holiday home this was not somewhere we were going to live routinely the saint john family had many other homes but it just needed to be able to accommodate people who were there for three weeks hunting yeah. And you mentioned that you might tell us about the evidence of whereabouts the manor house was then. And so it wasn't necessarily where Chawton House is today. Well, there's a building just down opposite the church, which is uh, maybe 100 yards down the drive, mm-hmm. which is known as the old manor. And in fact, actually got a listing in some of these sort of government listings of oddly enough listed buildings, which described it as being having built on the site of the old medieval manor. But in fact, that building is it's stables, Elizabethan stables, and they were built purposely to be as impressive as possible. So you look at them now and you think, oh, that's nice. You know, is is that a sort of like the Dower House or something? But no, 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 these these were the stables. And we had both archaeologists and house historians look over and it, it clearly was built for that purpose very very clearly we never found any evidence of any kind of medieval work in there in in the diggings around it 
Meanwhile, back at the house, I mentioned there's a medieval doorway there. Mm -hmm. The layout of the house now, the Elizabethan house, is built in a medieval form. The Great Hall and the Cross Wings still exist, but the old medieval building was completely demolished. Um, there's no evidence of it in terms of the foundations or the walls, except when you look at the sort of uh, the stonework. You can see old shaped stones in amongst all the flints on the front. So they probably came from the old manor. And in archaeological digs around the house, they found uh, medieval pottery. Uh, they found wall tiles. We even found a kind of an ecclesiastical tile in there. So what we think is that the knights, when they took over, they flattened whatever had been there before, built the new house on the layout of the old one, top of the old foundations, perhaps, using some of the rubble from the uh, demolished house. Mm. But it would have been largely a wooden hall anyway with stonework in it. Mm. That's quite amazing that they managed to get rid of so much of the evidence of an old house and the old foundations of the house yes yes it is and and that's why we can't be absolutely certain mm. it's still in the category of being our best hypothesis rather than being a proven fact yeah that seems to be the thing with a lot of history when people talk about the mists of time it's so true you know and and it's so frustrating when you think about some of the family you see you see some of the characters that people clearly were characters but we know nothing really about them you know, they faded out of memory, which is a great shame. It really is. And was there anything there before, I guess you've already sort of mentioned this one already, but before the manor house, as you say, that was the more Saxon or Norman hall that was there? Yes, there probably would have been a hall. It would have been literally a hall. I mean, if you go back to um, the Doomsday Book, and that's the first written record we've got of Chawton as such, they do talk about bondsmen, and some people have suggested that's because there must have been a hall there. And at the time, the owner of Chawton was a chap called Oda, Oda the Thane. I don't know about you, but you know, when people think about you know, a Saxon lord, a Thane, an Oda the Thane, I think of somebody like Cedric and Ivanhoe, you know, big bearded, burly man yes. with <laughs> shields on the wall and uh, plonking down his pint of mead and so on. Or yeah. A flagon of mead, I should say. And I assumed that he must have, uh, you know, fought against the Normans, you know, in, in Battle of Hastings, perhaps he'd been killed, or his land confiscated. It went to a chap called Hugh de Port, who was a, a Norman knight, a fairly minor Norman knight, actually, but he ended up with these 75 different manors across the country, including Chawton. Chawton, by the way, I mean, one of the things that Doomsday Book records is how much the land is worth. And it was one of Oda's. Oda had quite a few pieces of land, actually, and it's probably the highest earning piece of land that he had. So it wasn't trivial. But what was interesting was that Alton itself, Jordan sits outside Alton, Alton itself was actually a royal uh, borough. It's not a borough, but you know, the key part of Alton, the fief, the main fief, was owned by Edward the Confessor originally. And then his wife, Edith, owned all the other ones around Jordan. So it was a kind of a royal area, apart from Jordan, which was owned by Oda. And then if you look at uh, the pattern of the dam in Devon, Edith owned a lot of land as well. She was a huge landowner, actually, in her own right, Edith. Again, you find Oda and his brother owning one or two. And you see that pattern repeated. And we think that Oda was probably a steward. So this vision of him being a mighty warrior with his shields on the wall, no, he was yeah. probably a sort of a thin monkish figure, you know, <laughs> wrapped up in a fur coat and uh, kept armed with a, a bit more. <laughs> yes, um, you know, it's slightly disappointing. But... Yeah. Challenging the stereotypes, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yes. But uh, he didn't lose out in the Norman Conquest. He'd lost Chawton. He lost all of his possessions, actually. But then he was given even more back again. And... Okay. I went through the Doomsday book and I said the value of all these pieces of land is um, 
is shown in there, he actually ended up with two or three times as much in terms of the value of the land that he was holding. Why do you think that was that he got given so much? Well, imagine you're a Norman, you speak French, and you're over here, and you, you're trying to deal with the English peasants, and you're trying to sort of extort money out of them to the best of your ability. Having a steward who speaks the language and who helps you with that process is, is jolly useful. I suppose. Um, <laughs> so the word thane, actually, it, they weren't thanes from the Saxon times, they were known as King's Thanes, and they were Thanes appointed by the Normans, who were Saxons, but they helped administer the land. I see. So what happened in the end? Did Oda lose any of the land, or did he die off and someone else came to take the land from him? Well, I think Oda would have had somewhere to stay when he was in Chorton. So that's where the old pre-medieval hall would have come in. So Hudeport, the Norman got this. He was the Baron of, of Basing, um, or became the Baron of Basing. Chorton probably had no importance whatsoever other than raising revenue in the early Norman years, up until the time when the um, William Saint-Jean, Saint-Jean, they were the Deport family, but one of the Deports had married a Norman heiress who had the surname of Saint-Jean, and his father was still alive. So while his father was alive, he took his wife's name, Saint-Jean, because it, that enabled him to take over some of her land. And then when his father died, he kept on as Saint-Jean. So it's still the same family. But then you know, after they built it, William died. Henry III, as you know, had all his uh, hunting and so on. Mm. But the next generation after Henry III was Edward I. And his contemporary from the Saint-Jean family was uh, Sir John Saint-Jean. They clearly were good friends. They're both soldiers. They're both strong military types. And um, Edward I, known as Hammer the Scots, um, his lieutenant in Scotland was John Saint-Jean. He went on to become uh, basically the governor of Aquitaine, which was a, a British crown province, or rather, it had been, and they were trying to take it back and briefly succeeded at the time. Where was Aquitaine? South of France. So, you know, military campaigns and so on. They were close, and Edward I would have stayed at Chawton at the time. And his son, Edward II, visited, and Edward III. But it's probably at the time of Edward III that the royal connection started to die away. The lord at the time of Edward III was Edmund Saint-Jean, and he accompanied the king over to Calais, laying siege to Calais. And he was only 17, but he died at Calais. We don't know whether he was killed in the fighting or, or this was also the time when um, the Great Plague, Black Death, came. So he might have died of fever. He died. The king's no longer travelling down to Winchester because London had become much more the centre then. Mm. So the importance of Chawton started to fade. Chawton itself uh, actually was given to, I think it was Edmund's mother, when her husband died. Mm. So she had it as a kind of like a dower house for a while. I see. And that seems very unusual to have a female in charge of the lands at Chawton throughout history, isn't it? Of course, during the Knights period of owning, it was just Elizabeth Knight who Elizabeth Knight, had, yes. who was a landowner of Chawton. Were there many females before that who owned Chawton? Well, the most notable one was Baroness Isabel St. John, of course. And, you know, the laws about women owning the land... It's common law, uh, been introduced by the Normans, that when you got married, a woman's property became the man's property. Um, they were deemed to be one legal entity. Um, so basically what that did, in effect, was give control to the man. But ironically, this is something that got tighter and tighter as time went on. So you get to the time of Elizabeth Martin, and it was more unusual for a woman really to have control of her land as, as Elizabeth did than it was in, 
in Isabel's time. So she was absolutely the Baroness and she could decide where the uh, the land went to. Although when she married, by the way, she was Edmund's sister. Edmund, who died at Calais, had two sisters. And uh, the first sister had already married and she was the older. So she actually had control of the land through her husband and her husband managed it. Then they both died and Isabel had been married and her husband had died. So she inherited it herself. So she became the baron. It's not just Chawton, by the way, we're talking about here. It's the whole of the lands. I mean, she still had 40 older manors under her control. And when she remarried and her husband then, he went to parliament, but his standing at parliament was in place of his wife. So it was his wife's right he was um, exercising at parliament. And when she died, she chose who she left the land to. And uh, it went on to actually their children. So, yes, there was there was somebody before Elizabeth, one of those people who's faded in history. I wish I knew more about her. <laughs> yes. And she, as you said, not it wasn't just Chawton alone. It was all the Hampshire estates. Is that right? That's yes, that's right. That's right. Ownership over. Wow. But this is where actually it's at this time that the St. John ownership starts to erode because with Edmund died, when he died, it goes to his sister. So there's still St. John woman owning the land. Mm. But it's now going to... The, the, Isabel's son, um, who's a Poining. He's carrying the surname Poining. And later on, one of the Poinings had no son, so it goes to his daughters. And again, at this point, one of the differences between male and female inheritance is that if they're male descendants, the eldest male gets the whole thing. If there are no male descendants, the estates are divided between the, the woman, the daughters, if you like. So there were three daughters, and the estates were divided between the three of them. So it ended up, again... This part of the estate came under the Bonville family. Mm. And there's an interesting area, actually, on, on the Bonville family, just as, as an aside. The brother of the chap the heiress had married was, I think, his um, Earl of Cornwall. And he was in a major dispute with his neighbour. This is the time of the Wars of the Roses. And they carried the dispute into the Wars of the Roses on opposite sides. And Bonville was captured at the Battle of St. Albans. He was put on trial and he did a deal with Margaret Anjou. And Margaret Anjou was a very powerful woman, very manipulative. And she had a young son. So she agreed with Bonville that they put him on trial, they find him guilty, but then he'll be kind of pardoned. And the first part of it happened, he was put on trial, he was found guilty. And then she says to her son, so what should we do with him? And the son says he should be beheaded. So he was beheaded. And that is exactly the same story as happened to Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. Ah, <laughs> fun little uh, comparison. <laughs> and the author, Game of Thrones, really tells people that The Wars of the Roses was a major part of his inspiration. Margaret Anjou is, is Cersei, you know, Ned Stark is Bonville in this situation. A little uh, contribution to um, modern culture. Yes, <laughs> to today's popular culture, indeed. Yeah. How interesting. And the other Bonville managed to keep his head down during oh, the wars okay. and uh, managed to avoid being beheaded. He naturally died. It was actually his son who died without having any um, sons again. So once again, there's daughters. He ends up with Elizabeth Bonville and she marries Sir Thomas West, who was Lord Delawar. So it's Thomas West who sells Chawton to the Knights. He was a character again. I mean, he was 
one of Henry VIII's entourage, quite good friends with him. He used to accompany him around to the field of the cloth of gold and a lot of the big you know, show events that Henry VIII did. But he kind of fell out with Henry VIII when he broke with the church because you know, Sir Thomas was a good Catholic. He opposed the dissolution of the monasteries. And then Queen Mary came to the throne and um, all seemed good to Sir Thomas. He, of course, had no heirs, which is one of the themes of uh, the whole story of Chawton, actually. He had no heirs and he decided to make his nephew the heir, okay. William. William was absolutely delighted by, by this and so pleased that he decided that uh, he'd hurry things along a little bit and he poisoned his uncle. Oh, OK. Uh, <laughs> a bit too eager. Yeah, but it didn't work. And his uncle decided that a spell in the tower would do his nephew uh, no end of good. <laughs> so he was thrown into the Tower of London. And uh, But Sir Thomas was an old man. He died and uh, Elizabeth came to the throne after Mary and, you know, any friend of my sister must be my enemy and, and vice versa. Yeah. So she freed William and restored him as Baron de la War. Uh, and incidentally, it's his grandson who, as the governor of Virginia, had places like Delaware, the river and the Indian tribe and the, and the state named after him. So Delaware actually comes from a de la, de la War, um, from the West family. So what happened after him then? How long did he keep Chawton? Well, we don't really know what happened to Chawton in the 15th century during the Wars of the Roses. I mean, I think everybody else had other things on their minds rather than writing out... Land ownership. <laughs> land ownership, yes. But we think that the house probably stood there forgotten, probably rented out or used, occupied by stewards. The land was still worth having. It was still generating money, so it would have been worthwhile. By the early 1500s, it was being farmed by the Knight family. So they were renting all the land. Okay. What they had is it's like a medieval form or Tudor form of outsourcing. So a steward would gather all the monies owing to the Lord on behalf of the Lord and take a salary. And what the Knights were doing was gathering all the things owing to the Lord. And then they would pay the Lord a fixed amount. So basically, it's guaranteed income for Sir Thomas West, but they were taking any profits they could make, which was a license to print money. So they became extremely rich, the richest people in Holton. That enabled them to um, buy the land off Sir Thomas, who's probably not as keen to pass on to his family as he might have been. Yeah. <laughs> right, so the knights came along then just as a result of having rented the land for such a long time then, yes. eventually earn enough to then buy it off Sir Thomas. Yeah, they were really quite rich because it wasn't just Chawton they bought. They bought some other manors as well, Lymington. They bought a lot of the manors around Alton. And they're living a fairly lavish lifestyle with their stables. And the stables include, I mean, next door to it, there's um, a dovecot, which probably wasn't a dovecot. It was probably a kennels or a, a falconry. Yeah, suggests a very nice leisurely lifestyle almost, I suppose. Yes, and Sir Thomas, in his letters to the Knight family, um, he refers to various knights as my dear friend, my very good friend. The letters aren't written as if they are between a lord and his vassal. They are written as, an equal. as if they're equals, although yeah. they weren't socially, you know, but clearly they were respected enough to warrant that sort of respect in the letters. Fascinating. And then, of course, the knights came along and built Chawton as we know it today then, I suppose. Yes. Which is yes. another story. <laughs> it is. I just find it amazing thinking how important the land of Chawton was, given that it is today. It is such a tiny little village in my yes. eyes. And just in the little quiet outskirts of Alton in Hampshire, isn't it? I mean, who would have thought that kings of England, I mean, they're not just one. I mean, there's four kings of England would, would come and stay. Mm. Can you imagine what it must be like to the small villagers? Yeah, it must have been quite something. 
Do you know the population of Chawton throughout? I think there was something like, and this is off the top of my head, but it'd be something like 30-odd households at the time of the Doomsday Book. Mm. And the households would have multiple people in them. So you're probably talking about a village of maybe up to 100 people or something like that. And it didn't change in size much, we don't think, until the house was built. And when you start getting the king and his entourage coming in, that brings in business it brings in demand so the village did expand because of the royal interest but then it would have contracted again after they lost interest you would have had the black death as well in the 1300s um diminishing of winchester as a powerful city in england but it's been fairly stable i think the the size shortened ever since Thank you very much martin for talking to us today about the history of chawton before the night it is incredibly impressive and you must have done so much research so congratulations on putting it all together for us (laughs) i have to say i really enjoy it it's wonderful making a little bit of a discovery even if you find out that somebody discovered it 50 years ago (laughs) it's still a nice feeling when things come together yeah and bring those things that have been forgotten back up to the surface yeah and i'm sure we'll be talking to you again if you will for further episodes on the history of the house i look forward to it thank you very much Well, golly gosh, quite a history. Did you take note of all of that? Who'd have thought that the Chawton estate in the tiny village would have had such prominence through time and even be fit for royalty over centuries? Again, that was Martin Caddick there speaking to us. He will no doubt be chatting to us again later on in the Chawton House podcast series. Do check out further episodes and head on over to the Chawton House website and social media to keep updated on what's going on at the house. And thank you for this music track, Guitalele's Happy Place by Kara Square, found on ccmixter.org. 